The following is an archived podcast presented by the Branson and Hudson Foundation for Podcast Recovery. This podcast is entitled, A Novel Podcast, Academia in Repose. It is the first and only episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode one. In the Episcopalian tradition, what you see is the unfolding of the modern narrative into a precisely middle-class form. Novels were a great source of entertainment that were not temporal, but everlasting, ever-rewarding things. Nowadays, even though most writers have to go to graduate school to write, and most have to have the wealth necessary to take the risk of it, the novel itself is still a very middle-class tradition. For instance, the qualms of desire are interchangeable for the use of, let's call it, metafiction. Soon, the exasperation of greed, post-post-colonialism, pseudoscientific god postulates, gregarious chemistry, arrogant demagoguery, and quote-unquote husbands that do be leaving the toilet seat up, can be interpreted as the raging urge to redefine, formally the presence of a motive of nation-building and cohesion that can violate the attempts of Philistines to craft a healthy... Democratic kleptocracy. In short, I find the putrid novel Cat in the Hat as a droll work and four children. Do not ask me about the vile Cat in the Hat. That was from my New York University MFA thesis, RE colon fiction. My name is August Riverford. Welcome to Illuminations and Ruminations. This is less of a podcast, per se, but an audiobook project by some of the most prestigious writers in academia. I am joined today by Casper Novak, a creative writing professor at Duke and the author of three novels. Casper, greetings. How do you do, August? I'm also here with uh, Jürgen Naslson, author of My Personal Holocaust. Jürgen Naslson, welcome. I would say... Thank you for welcoming me with the horrifying symmetry of your office. And there's a vulgar, vulgar cry inside of me. The classic architecture of brutalism is something I love to surround myself by due to the sharp angles and simplicity of it makes me feel more dead than alive. And I find such cramped quarters begets more inspired fiction. Jürgen, let's begin by discussing your book, My Personal Holocaust. My Personal Holocaust uh, was steeped in controversy. People said that the title was uh, insensitive in light of the non-personal holocaust that occurred in Europe several decades ago, but I think that inside every man there lives a Hitler and what that Hitler does is wage a war against oneself. And oftentimes a holocaust can happen inside of you. Unlike others who seek to bury and fill their gas chambers with cement, I have documented them for the world to see. My personal holocaust is 38 volumes, 85,000 pages. An of ambitious work. It is every argument I have ever gotten in with my family, every problem I've ever had, every even normal day I've had, because, you know, the Holocaust was not just kill, kill, kill. You know, sometimes right. they would be, you know, say, 
oh, let us play Parcheesi. Let's have dinner. We're not Nazis all the time. Just like right. during the Holocaust, your personal Holocaust, you'll have a day where you go to the park or you you buy it, you install a TV or you talk to your neighbor. Um, a Holocaust can be something as simple as your tenure getting extended um, by three years away. It is a, a Holocaust inflicted can be, on you. Holocaust can be a TA who can't be a, keep a secret. What you define as a Holocaust is not insensitive. In fact, saying that something is a personal Holocaust is about the greatest honor you can ga- give the to the victims of the non-personal Holocaust. I think that if the real victims of the uh, regular Holocaust had the abilities of either of you fine scholars of the written word that maybe so many people would not deny its occurrence. I think that when we discuss writing, what we are discussing is human nature in itself. And human nature is selfish. Human nature is a tiny German man with a little mustache. Um, And I think that everyone says that writers are too focused on Nazism and Hitler as a metaphor. And I say, go, 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 go. We're almost there. When you think of history, you think of Hitler. It's the first thing. It's the first thing you think about. uh, I don't know the word in in, uh, our country. It's called Schakenblacke. Klackenschuck, the uh, man who dresses up in a type of uh, felt costume to represent the sporting team. Um, he, Hitler. He, that, Hitler is, that is the mascot. Mascot, Hitler is. No, that's, the, isn't that something you wear around your neck? I mean, you can look at uh, Jesus on the cross as a mascot. You can look at Hitler as a mascot. You can exactly, look Hitler as a mascot for history. You can look at that Toledo chicken as the quintessential mascot. And essentially, what we have these mascots do is represent a single motion at a time. You do not see the Philly fanatic suffering. Right. You do not see... Mr. Met is, you know, synonymous with Hitler. Mr. Met is someone who obviously symbolizes um, so much inner turmoil and gender confusion and even kind of the personification of colonialism itself. And those things aren't expressed mm-hmm. simply because most people aren't polymaths or thinkers or philosophers. Most people are dullards that work with their hands and never order food from Grubhub. The first time that I saw the big, uh, big boy logo for the restaurant, I was almost pushed to my backside because of the immense fear that I saw in his eyes that he couldn't get enough meal he couldn't get a big enough meal simply put his very own restaurant um that hamburger could you know essentially be infinite and who knows if the big boy would either be crushed by it or grow alongside with it these challenge our notions of god these challenge our notions of even statehood because what a writer's job is to do is to write and what a academic's job is to do is to write about what they write and just pull whatever you want from it. When you think of people like 
Jack in the Box, you think of him as someone that is lost as we are in his purpose. More confused, perhaps. Right. You can see it in his expression. I find no difference in Jack in the Box than I do from Stephen Daedalus from Ulysses or other James Joyce works. Essentially, what we are mm-hmm. discussing here is the same character, both mascots for the want, the searching, the hunger, the never being satisfied with the size of your big boy hamburger. And, you know, simply like Don DeLillo wrote about a supermarket being existential dread, you can write about Jack in the Box being the symbolization of God in modern capitalist society. Everything that you see that you don't like is late capitalism. Yes, just like um, the most vitriolic work of all time, The Cat in the Hat. That cat simply represented chaos, and we are a society of laws. And I'm disgusted by the cat in the hat. He hides behind a fake name. He is not here for personal attention, which means you're a dangerous writer. If you use a pen name, you are dangerous because you're not accountable for your actions. The most awful soul-searing work I've ever read is the Busy Town series. Simply vile. Rats, mice, snakes, driving helicopter, his apples. Name is, his name is literally Richard Scary. He knows what he's they doing. They all know what they're doing. The creatures that he created are condemned to their jobs forever. You do not know this man as a worm. You know him as the bus driver. You, the worm is his secondary character. Right, and it draws parallels it to people in modern society. If you will th- visualize your bus driver as a worm, as less than human. Yes, you know him only as his occupation. You don't know his flaws. Like, is he Polish? You don't know. You'll never know. The rictus grin of Huckle Cat as he sees a picnic <laughs> basket or another meal that he can abscond with. You will have... What will you do then, Huckle, when you have you it? Will ha- do you know what the end of your road looks like when you don't have desire pushing your fat little body along? You will have no. the worm that will crawl inside of an apple. And you will initially think that the worm is doing it for sustenance. And his face will poke out the front a little bit, and there will be a screen, and you'll see controls. And then his tail will shoot out the top of it and begin spinning. And he has turned this into some kind of news helicopter without even a purpose, without any assistance even to what he is doing. And you begin to look at humanoids and sentience as just another form of slightly more bizarre automaton. Simply going out into nothingness and doing grand things that mean simply nothing. Well, I found I agree with you, gentlemen, that the Busy Town series are quite grotesque and heinous, but I found the series that torments me the most is the I Spy series. Simply awful. Essentially you're put in the position of almost a voyeur, a pervert even, and you're gazing upon these little vignettes and you're ordered to find different things in this and you cannot proceed until you found everything in this. 
this image. And I believe what's that what that is doing is representing society and the capitalistic nature of things that's ordering us how to think and what we should find before we can move on with our own existence and our own You will think of even the utilitarian purpose of Waldo. At least you are looking for a man. In the I Spy, you will be looking for three thimbles amidst a horrorscape of children's toys arranged to resemble some kind of menagerie. And you will find yourself scared, whereas in the Waldo, it is an innocent concept, something productive, something you look for. You're finding your friend. Well, in I Spy, these these scenes can be depicted in very comical, very beautiful, scary, terrifying, different ways. Some of them, you may want to go into them. You may want to be there, but you can never be there, and that's part of the torturous uh jurgen in your book um my personal holocaust you touch upon a lot of terrifying dinner arguments tell me how did your family react to being taken almost word from word they i will not lie they said jurgen you have made us the star of your great spectacle. And there were many arguments, a lot of crying, a lot of nudity, the emotional nudity of a family. But I think that once the book came out and they saw the gift that they gave to the world... I think the biggest tragedy I read is the microwave argument where... You were arguing with the rest of the family that you found it psychopathic that they did not have a microwave. And that one really touched home for me because while you were having a discussion on capitalism, while you were having discussion on production and means, they simply were talking about a microwave. And like all the arguments in the book, the argument is really about fatherhood, but, you know capitalism is like a great father that we all share but we're also nursing from him we also nurse from his teeth and he's angry that we have feminized him that we have turned him into this big milk bosom so when you write when you write about everything when you write about the entire universe and you turn god and masculinity itself into a long-legged uh olive uh yeah, coconut oiled up, long legged, big butt, pink bikini, perfect eyebrows, thirty six, twenty four, thirty six, maybe maybe a double, little bit, maybe double D titties, be- bleach blonde hair with a little bit of like collagen in her armpit so she doesn't sweat, lip liner, Some lip liner, bubble, bubble, butt, bubble butt, baddie. butt baddie with you know copious copious eyeshadow and. Of you know simply thought, uh-huh. a a a, line. a ratchet vile big butt bimbo when you turn God into that and you write about everything what what do you write about next what's your next project well well uh, as you know the I have put out the final volume of my personal holocaust. 
and uh, I simply do not know. I I think that it is like my audience, the audience of readers, a bunch of little gnawing children who leave teeth marks on right. my teeth, saying more, 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 give us more pages. And I say, but you have sucked my milk glands right. dry. I'm but I will go to sleep, and I will wake up, and my bosom will be filled with more milk. I'm I looking at you right, right now, and you look almost, you know, sallow and sickly, and and you yeah, are not wearing a shirt. Your nipples are even pale. You look somewhat akin to a lich, as you are an undead sorcerer, and your phylactery would be your book. How... Are you taking care of yourself nowadays? Um, every day. You know, I write about it a little little bit in my book. But, uh, you know, I have the normal Norwegian academic breakfast every day. Three single oats from an oatmeal stirred into a glass Beautiful, of water. Beautiful, simple people. Uh, and- one cigarette. Without any... I, I can't stand it when the... The paper around the filter is brown. I don't like it. They're uh, all white. I know for lunch, I yeah. I had lunch with you Phony earlier today, coffee. and you ordered off-menu, as you were known to do, and ordered a traditional Norwegian lunch of a moose hoof with a flower on it. And you ate it in one I bite. Like the mo- yes, I... Um I think that everything we do is an expression. Everything we do is literature, and I think that when we consume a meal in the way that, uh, right, if you know, Daffy <laughs> Duck or any of those people would unhinge their jaw and swallow whole, and then continue with the frenetic hellscape of their eternal well, combat. People from Scandinavia, they eat their dinner and they, they'll uh, open their mouth and above it hold a, an entire fish and they'll just consume the entire fish in one bite and then remove it and you'll see simply the fish's skeleton bones. There were times when I was arguing with my father and after 17 hours of naked verbal combat, as is traditional in all of Northern Europe, I would look at him and I would not see my father. I would see a snake who is still <laughs> slinging these verbal attacks on my person. But he was still like a red steak. I feel like eat. any red-blooded man, we can never escape our inherent gender. And I feel like I am similar when I am teaching a class. And I get assigned a new TA or adjunct professor and they'll come in in a sweater dress and immediately I see them replaced in my mind as a bone-in ham that has probably read my books and it would just be they think I'm like this great smart guy and it's essentially a layup and I think that and then I I look at my wedding ring and then I, I put it in my pocket the theatrical performance of our day to day life where upon the sweater dress and the heaving bosom there within is like a stage cane yanking us off stage. If you simply reduce your life and you describe it as every single thing I do is art, 
then you really have to never bother to try and do any actual art because everything is just art already. You might as well just go get drunk, you know, in your office and uh, young people will think it's cool. And it's not, but it's art. Well, this is where we, this is where we, we transcend that mindset, and we write. You know, I don't, I don't write. I, yes, I, I don't write because writing. I want to. I don't write because I love the attention, and that I want people to think I'm intelligent, and I love inhabiting a world where people are constantly praising me. I write because I have to. You know. Right. I write because I don't like writing. I hate writing. I write because I have to. I don't want to write. It's my least favorite thing in this world. I fucking hate writing. But Casper, you have are the author of I believe three novels. Would you mind Yes, I'm finishing I'm finishing my fourth book at the moment. Oh, congratulations. Um I assume that's going to be published on your university's press so you don't have to do any kind of work. Um, Casper, tell us, let's go all the way back. For those who aren't quite familiar, what was your first novel? Mm -hmm. Well, my first one that was... I really count my second one as my first one because the first one was sort of almost like a preliminary warm-up. And in my mind, it doesn't really exist anymore because I got it out of my mind, but I didn't publish it. So to me, it doesn't exist. It's out there floating, but it's not tangent. So my real first book was called Tattoo Heretic, and it's about 1,700 pages. Beautiful work. Amazing. And it's... It's printed on paper made from recycled, shredded Bibles. It was and, a really um, important, controversial have... statement that literally no one got mad at. <clears throat> the most courageous a... thing to do is to come out against Christianity. Well, I think a lot of people thought I was doing that. And the truth was that I was doing that, but I was also uplifting it by breaking it down. And also, the book has no mention of Christianity at all. But Can you tell us, what was the book about? The people who... Well, it's, it's a bit about, if I were to really simplify it, really simplify it, I would say it's about what anything is about. Love. Um... And I can actually, I can read a, a part from it, if you'd oh, like. Oh, please. Um, I mean, I love the book. It's an amazing book. I'd love for it. It uh, would be the first pleasure I've felt in months. <clears throat> All right. So this is from Tattoo Heretic, and um, this is one of my favorite, my favorite passages from it. He could see her faults spilling upon the umbra of her face. He could sense the shifting malignance of her somber rationalization for every utterance his eyes may have betrayed. Sweltering into a congregation of galvanized thoughts, split in birth from the mitosis of his own ideations, a homecoming of introspection, illuminating the serpentine canvas of his very cognition. And that's from Tattoo Heritage. It's amazing. The simple amount of... Oh. 
I think it really speaks for itself. It does. I mean, it means literally everything. Um, it's just simply a beautiful piece of work. When I, when I typed that out on my typewriter, I paused and I quivered. My entire body began to shake and I began to cry because I knew that was it. That was it. And, and it, you've, you've made me remove my karate style pants. Strip me down. I thank you, Jurgen. I had to, in the middle of that passage, fold a paper towel into a square, and I had to reach under my shirt and wipe down my armpits. And the the paper towel is a putrid yellow color. The amount of passion that soaked out of my body. It is a courageous yellow that comes out of your pores. Clinical if you yellow. Don't mind, I would like to read. It's clinical yellow. I would like to read a little bit from my personal Holocaust. Yes, while we're, while please, we're reading, please, please do. Please go ahead. This is from chapter 785. <laughs> a most horrible summer. <clears throat> My father does not stir from his trance as he sits shirtless at our unbearably desolate dining room table. In his profane manner, he has produced a bowl of muesli to eat at a table designated for great suppers, one of company and community. His solitary cereal is an insult to everyone who has ever or will ever dine with us. I stride to the counter as if he weren't there, but I walk with a speed that betrays my legs knowing that he is... I pour two tablespoons of sea salt into one of my mother's ornate glasses that have always embarrassed me. The salt is soon greeted by its partner of water. I open the drawer to grab one of the spoons, the one I got from an otherwise humiliating and violent trip to Magna Storenschank. As I have withdrawn my groin backwards away from the drawer as I opened it and pulled it back, my penis is accidentally plopped into the place where the spoons go. There are no spoons there, only my member, alone yet crowded by the silverware. He is a nervous neighbor to his bedfellows. Salt in the afternoon produces bad dreams, Jürgen, says my intolerable father. You do not have to dispense your chauvinistic military knowledge every time we exchange verbally, father. I say stoic, yet breaking apart internally. I did what I had to do, he says, with venom in his voice. I walk over not knowing what I am going to do. I have never known what I want to do. I am Jürgen Nazilson, the author. I am Jürgen, the sullen father. I am Jürgen, naked in my parents' vacation home. I am Jürgen, who had to imagine Bulma nude to achieve climax and conceive my son. I am every man of my time, and I am no one. My father is who he is, and he is the awful presence mixed with the valor of his youth. The grotesque precision with which he mixes his muesli is a sad imitation of the papers and lists he compiled so deftly during his military service from exactly 1942 to 1945. He was a hero of Norway's bureaucratic special forces. He is the villain of my life. 
I feel the magma of rage rise in the bottom of my scrotum, then my stomach, then my throat. Before I can deliver my rebuke, a single pubic hair falls from me into Father's cereal. <laughs> what seconds ago produced such power is now an unwieldy gray lump of flesh that asymmetrically garnishes the earth around it with its hairs. I am ashamed. I am angry at the thought of him noticing. While a tear has only made it halfway down my face, I pick up his cereal and hurl it out the window before he can derate me with pubic shame. Jürgen, he yells. You do not understand and do not want to, I say, my throat entirely closed with emotion. He tries to reason with me, but he is only speaking through my naked ass. I feel like that was the passage that really made the previous 784 chapters pay off. I consider it sort of the climax to uh, act, uh, the unofficial act 382 of the book. It is literally the first action depicted in the novel. The first thing your character of you, the meta character personified, actually does rather than moping around and yelling and arguing the first action it's like a birth of a man who has the ability to throw his father's cereal out of the window because a pube fell in it yeah i i think the holistic barriers imposed by your narrator pose numerous questions as to the hegemony of thought. I think that every every author will describe a coming-of-age experience differently. While Philip Roth will describe coming-of-age as a man jacking off on another man's possessions, Barry Hanna will describe coming-of-age as your first DUI, you will have Faulkner's coming of age as the first time you realize one of your close friends has one-fourth African-American blood. All of these things congeal to form a different type of man. And I believe that through this we see my personal holocaust become the epitome of truth in a society that does not want to hear it. I consider every... Epitome. Uh, I consider every uh, chapter and every the uh, four or five parts of the book where I uh, am depicted uh, doing anything at all uh, like a great birth and the placenta sears the reader's eyes but they can't wipe it away because it is not part of them and I'm part of them I'm inside all of them and they're inside me essentially every person that has ever read your book is a sexual partner of yours. I have the world's greatest body count. The lure of imaginary totality is momentarily frozen before the dialectic of desire hastens on within symbolic chains. I mean, you look at the dichotomy of it where you have masculinity, you have... um, a type of post-colonialism, you have new criticism, you have all these types of literary schools of thought that will change how you read a novel. You will have all of these things coinciding within you to create kind of a homunculus-type being that is 
almost skimming the surface of anything literary that can ever be read, when actually what we're saying is that fiction, nonfiction, autobiography, all of these are just words that tickle your brain and cause you to have adverse reactions to things you wouldn't expect. Literally every single book I've ever read has made me cry. Menus. If you don't, every book I've menus, ever read has made me vomit. Wendy's fast food thing. Or vomit. They've all made me cry. Wendy, I consider her, consider her the, uh, the great female antagonist to many of our lives. If you don't Ma, vomit or right. cry I remember after seeing her, you're not Lovers, alive. mothers, mother lovers. The first. Every lover is a mother and every mother is a lover. Every father is a lover. I remember if having you a view the initial things correctly. The first time I had a, I remember having a sort of knee-jerk sexual reaction to a book I read was the first time I read through the manual for Half Life, and I can't read it now because. It'll immediately make me collapse and faint. I have a similar experience with my favorite work of literature that uh, propelled me to uh, get into the horrible craft of writing. I am speaking of the first novelization of the Splinter Cell series right. of video uh, game. Everyone's familiar with those amazing pieces of work, highly elevated in the literary field with many studies. These students even today bringing me papers written about those novels. Everyone wants to talk about Sam. I remember my first real kind of sexual awakening um, was the character Garona in the first Warcraft video game, 1994. Um... Who knew 8 Pixels could cause such a carnal reaction in me? Um, the entire Blizzard canon is a minefield of sexual fascination and horror for the modern writer. Um, the first time that I saw Deckard Cain's character model, I thought it was a woman who was hiding her hourglass figure in a robe. I thought that reminds me um, the blacksmith Charcy was the sole reason why I spent so much time up in my attic room playing on my CRT monitor and I would just gaze at the screen and her large structure her big bones there's a long and her there's a long tradition of writing about masturbation in white male writing, and it's something that needs to be explored and needs to be discussed. Locking yourself in your bedroom when your parents are out of town and just going to town all night is an experience that seems comedic. It's comedic at first glance to imagine just pulling on your pud so hard that your forehead starts sweating and you're just constantly looking at the door waiting for the doorknob to turn until you blow your little salty load into, you know, presumably some, you know, pillow covers that you took off. 
right? It's comedic to do that, but in reality, what we're talking about is life and death. Uh, the people have known to think one of the funny parts from my personal Holocaust is the part um, where for 10 hours I played Counter-Strike because I was informed erroneously that if you got around without deaths, you could play as a woman and you could look at your player models, actual organs and breasts, and this was not true. But they were not there during the great roller coaster of adrenaline when I got through a perfect round of the dust and I looked down and I just see the same nothing I've always seen. And, and no vagina. That's when DE no dust memories. became your personal DE inferno. I would call it more uh, DE Dachau for how it felt. FY pool day. I. You said the. You said roller coaster. It brought me back to the time when I was very young and I was playing the game Roller Coaster Tycoon and I had. In my mind depicted this great roller coaster, this great ride, this great masterpiece, and in my mind it was perfect. And I spent an entire week of a summer working on this, and when I finally finished, I could hardly look at my screen. I had to I had to leave and walk away, but when I came back, it truly was perfect. And to my horror, when I finally opened up the ride to my loyal guests in my theme park one person rode it and her name was Christina was the guest name and I knew that was the first time that I had felt love for someone even if she wasn't real the love was so that made me realize later on can one fall in love with a, a character that one has written Casper, may I ask you, you were working on another novel. Would you like to talk about that? No. Okay. Would you get fellow? I'd like to hear about your, your work, though, August. Oh, wow. Um, which one? I mean, I have written four novels. I have spent, you know, a long time in the industry of learning and and educating young people. Um, I guess I'll start with my first novel. Um, a little bit of personal history on me. Um, every single novel I've ever written has ended in a divorce for me. So this kind of causes a little bit of, you know, tension in whatever my current relationship is. Um, I wrote this novel when I was 27 years old, when I was just starting teaching. Um, this novel is called The, the Adjunct Succubus. <clears throat> her olive skin and pert breasts bundled, bustled under her relatively homely sweat sweater. Mauve, droll, something found presumably discounted at something as disdainable as what the children call, quote-unquote, the mall. A lecherous den of chocolate malts and skateboarding. I found most adjuncts to be simply children themselves fawning, looking for heroes. 
As I imagined her nubile nipples rubbing hopelessly against the working-class fabric, I began to think about the hopelessness of the great American novel. And that's from page 33 of the Adjunct, Adjunct Succubus. One of my favorites. It was my first one, Absolutely and it was it was my breakthrough novel. Um, people called it misogynistic. I said, I simply do not know what that word means. It's impossible for it to be misogynistic because you have reduced me to a woman. You have penetrated me, as you have done to all your readers. <laughs> as I have done to most of my readers and most of my students. And at this time, I, always... I was one year married into, you know... Now she goes by Deborah Klostein, and Deborah um, couldn't handle the novel. She couldn't handle the accusations that came out because of it, or that I described a character in the novel that was exactly like her, say, named Kebra Dolfstein. And she was a huge bitch, and she constantly critiqued my character for leaving the toilet seat up, for um, not doing the dishes, um, for not wanting to have children and still wearing condoms and constantly hiding my wedding ring. And she just couldn't handle it because she doesn't understand that when a writer writes, he's channeling something from almost a different dimension, and it's not about you. And in fact, it's very vain that she thought it was about her. That is disgusting. I... But soon after that, I married um, an adjunct professor that I met, and... Uh, four years later, I wrote another novel. And this novel is called um, The, Apioth the Apoth Apothes you got it? Apotheosis of... Yeah, Apotheosis of a Vintner's Daughter. There it is. <clears throat> like most men, I tried to come of age through a woman. The conscious act of vaginal defilement following rope bursts onto her futon had an unconscious side. The act of a man entering a woman, hibernating in her womb, and being reborn again as a stronger, more capable self. This act of birth and rebirth and busting loads could loop endlessly. Granted, the quantity and quality of women present, there could never be the same one. I closed my eyes at my desk in the library, my eyes presumably rolling back into my head, startled by my own existential horniness, and stood up and started packing my my things. It was lunchtime, and I was thinking Arby's. That's from page 65 of the Apotheosis of a Vintner's Daughter. Amazing. I, um, I've experienced something similar to you, where I have unintentionally hurt somebody through my writing. My son uh, has taken exception with being featured in Act 700 of my personal holocaust. Which chapter was that? Uh, chapter uh, 3000. <laughs> I would uh, like to read the offending chapter so Please. that if Emil is listening, <clears throat> yeah. he can see that he has mm. nothing to be upset about. It was a father trying to show his son to the world. Emil is clad in a pair of jeans replete with every logo of every American professional basketball team. A basketball jersey that just says zero zero basketball on the back. <laughs> a flat brim <laughs> A flat brim cap with just the words Mr. Condom. <laughs> 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 
In place of where a sports team or corporate logo I find itself. I'm put off by it, but at least he's covering his rows that are like a field of corn tended by a heartless corporate farm. Their symmetry petrifies me. Deadass, I need SoundCloud Pro, he says. I want to burst into tears. I have no idea what he is talking about. Through Emil's childhood, I tried to give him <laughs> up to four hours a week of my undivided attention. His mother put him in the greatest building block learning-based schools in all of Norway. I even took him to see Little Wayne perform a skateboard style of American hip-hop when he reached Nafelkavlfragmenten, or coming of age. Now at 18, he is a small man who tortures me with these riddles. Dad, you aren't listening. I have to put up Black Chief Wiggum. My eyes are like dams of flesh and hair that were built by a careless oh, engineer. Jesus. They cannot hold back the waters anymore. Tears run down my face. I do not know what you're talking about, Emil, I cry. He sighs, <laughs> turning my vulnerability into a joke he will tell his friends later. I have, to, I have a new song called Black Chief Wiggum. I have to put it up. I'm finna be signed if I hit. My quill is empty. I cannot produce any more arrows to aim at our conversational volley. I sadly drink some of the lingonberry soda in the commemorative Mac Miller cups he had us buy for his 13th birthday five years ago. He does not accept my surrender. He produces his phone, an awful piece of vulgar glass that has no doubt been the conduit of countless barbs and messages about me and other messages that I've seen. Messages to young women saying confounding things like, I'm finna give you a hysterectomy with this anaconda, though. You look like Jessica Rabbit, for real. I'ma fuck you like I just did the max sentence of 34 months for murder and got out today. <laughs> Through a series of touches, a hip-hop beat plays from this device. Black Wiggum, Black Wiggum, I feel like Black Wiggum. I ain't black, I just feel like Black Wiggum. Boys hanging out the Rari, we wing em. Black Wiggum, Black Wiggum. Like I was carried away by a sympathetic giant, I find myself in the garden. My body was so saddened that it turned my mind off and forced me to storm out. It is not with pride that I say I could not bear to hear it anymore. It is with even less pride that I hear my neighbor Olaf demand that I cover my body in clothes. With great interest, he has avoided understanding me. <laughs> the amount of pure emotion poured into that um, really reflects on just the human experience. And I can relate in a way that I am an educator I ask specifically to teach the freshmen usually 18 to 19 year olds and I have recently they're begun, the most primed for your expertise I have recently begun you know the university does not allow you to exclude male students and I always find mostly because I feel like my natural energy is very masculine and men compete and I have particularly had a lot of trouble with a particular male student. Um, typically, I can tell trouble is beginning to come 
as he will take out his phone and hand it to his friend and ask him to record something. And this happens about once every class, and I just hope he does it early so I can focus on the rest of it. And he will usually storm the front and start saying, Foe! And then he will, his friend in the audience will tell him, and I do not know what this means. He says, you got a dab on him. Do the dab on him. And he will start violently shaking his head into the nook of his forearm and bicep and constantly in an almost anime pose with his fingers locked together and extended. He will consistently follow me around for about five minutes doing this gesture to me. He hit you with the dab. He hits me with the dab. I do not and understand I, none of us know now, what that is now the problem with it is is that the st- other students love it and apparently it makes me look like a fool now i do not know if i should strike him if i do it back the rituals of this seem almost barbaric i don't know what to do but these young people are are ruining well, i embrace it you know i got in trouble for sleeping with a student well three actually just a semester but they've taught me so much you know an 18 year old's perspective is something i often forget and being shown the world in ways of things like the weekend and j cole um pepe memes it's helped me grow as a writer a teacher a person and i mean a lover for all I feel like to embrace this is to betray myself, even. I, I would rather die in obscurity than to challenge this young man to a dab-off, to hit him with the dab. I don't <laughs> want to hit him with the dab. I don't want to do it for the vine. I don't want to show him it. to. I don't want to take it in for the real thing. I don't want, want to be to do cool. I don't want to be cooling or bullying. I don't. I'm. I. I would like to study my work. They say, uh, children now. They say, you know, I had to do it to him. And I think a, a fatalistic mindset makes me very sad. I. I believe it comes from my younger perspective. You gentlemen are older than me. I'm not a tenured professor, as you both are. But I welcome these <clears throat> these interactions. I'll often find myself at times sitting upon a bench in a park or perhaps a cafe while listening to maybe John Cage or Frank Zappa. And I can tell the person surrounding me notice my MacBook in my, my stack of four or five books, usually one of yours. And even though they do not once look in my direction, they must be intimidated by my clear erudite vitality. You know, if a woman were to ask me what my books are about and not already know, then I'm not going to have any interest. And this has never occurred. But I anticipate that is how it would happen. I feel similar. You can tell that usually people around you are thinking about it. And if you're reading a book, everyone around you is looking at the cover and thinking about, wow, this guy must really be somebody because he's reading a certain book. 
Um, if you wouldn't mind, gentlemen, I'd like to read a passage from my latest novel. It would be the thing that excites me the most. Um, this novel I wrote about three years ago, and I wrote it at a place of great <sighs> turmoil. Great turmoil. Um, with the release of my previous novel, The Polymath, The Polymath was me trying to write a essential movie one. I was trying to cash in on a movie deal because the movie producers said that, you know, the adjunct succubus just had no real thing to it. So I tried to write, I tried to write the polymath, which was about a brain genius professor who lives in the suburbs, who is about five foot 10. He has a beard. He reads a lot. He, um, the women love him. And, you know, I tried to write it, and it was moderately successful, but the problem is I named the main character Peter North, which I didn't know was a porn actor. And it kind of turned the whole novel into a joke. You don't know who Peter North is? Uh, well, here's a passage from it. I did not know. I know who he is now. I've seen his work. I've seen a lot of his work, but... I always just read it. When Peter North entered the room, he naturally scanned it. Not in a militaristic or authoritarian sense, but in the sense of a brain genius. He sensed things, saw connections. Whoever owned this dacha had a real bad case of I want to kill the president. And that's from page 41 of the polymath. And it was the passage I was most proud about, but to realize that in reality, Peter North was a load-blowing maniac sex freak, which I have nothing to do with. Um, it was quite discerning. In, but, uh, in the city, in the city that my parents' uh, summer house, that you may remember, that thirty thousand of my pages pertain to arguments about, uh, we have a sex-positive mayor, and he named the main street of town Lexington Steel Avenue. <laughs> oh, damn it! The sex-positive po- party is the biggest one in Norway. And the sex-positive mayors. They are usually giving their victory speeches completely in the nude. They are showing people their naked bodies, and they're constantly telling people how not ashamed they are. And if you don't want to see it, then, you know... Move to a different town. That's your yeah. problem. And that you need to, you need to figure out. You have a lot to examine. About Typically, yourself. when you go to Norway, yeah. there is the mayor of whatever town there to meet you, and he walks into the room jerking off and says, "Welcome to Norway." It's regular, you know. Everybody has mailing. But most of the time, people there are naked because they're not in a sexual way. It's in a humi- humanistic way. It's never primal. sexual, you know. I've technically slept with students, but. Never any penetration. They just lay there with me. I tell them about... Uh, fully naked. Fully naked. They are wearing their parka. And I tell them about the uh, the ship in a bottle argument I had with uh, father in 1982. <laughs> and it feels better than sex. Well, it... The, we may sleep with these students and, you know give them company but it's it's just a distraction from the torment we face in writing you know a word is like a woman you know you spend forever 
searching for the right one, but it always seems to find you first, you know. Some words look better than others, you know, especially Asian ones. And, you know, I just particularly myself like the way they look more, you know, they're shorter and have nicer angles to them. And I'm talking about the words. May I... The Asian words. May I read to you, gentlemen, the most romantic thing I've ever wrote? And this is actually a paragraph in itself that caused my wife single-handedly to divorce me on the spot. Um, my This was with my fourth wife, um, my last wife, my most recent ex-wife. I haven't written another book yet, so... Um, this one I wrote as a love letter to her that she just simply didn't understand. And I tried to explain to her that writing is a deep well that you draw on not only your experiences, but the experiences you see and the experiences you feel within the universe. It is not something tangible or concrete, but something that moves with you and moves through you from other people. But this was the most, this was my love letter to her, and I don't think she understood it. And this is from the book, uh, Past Your God, Suck, Fuck, Father Figure. <clears throat> I felt it. There was a universal, primal force, a fuck center deep down in the hole of the universe, a tepid pink thing there waiting for me and just me and no one else and just me for all time. The TA locked eyes with me. The students were preoccupied with the test. She took a short breath and I breath and I saw her breasts move in her shirt. I thought I loved my wife. I looked inward and found the multiversal fuck gunt running through every cooter in the universe simultaneously and imagined the ever-growing exponential orgasm that crescendos only at the roof of existence, the soft, lipstick-lined mouth of God, and I blew torrential ropers all over time and space. And that's from page 49 of Past Your God, Suck, Fuck, Father Figure. And I wrote that on an index card, and I put it on my wife's pillow. And the next morning, all of her stuff was gone. She's a fool. A complete fool to dodge. A problem. pie. <laughs> motion. The problem with being a genius is having to deal with uh. others. Who simply don't know what your words mean. The women that don't understand it. They aggressively seek to not comprehend and to understand so that they can think. And yeah. If they were right all those times. After I left the index card those... on her pillow, I didn't come home for about two weeks. But that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I forgot to it's charge just... my phone. It's not a big deal. It simply comes down to the... Animosity that's directed towards the culture of writing today. Um, you know, the internalization and, and intrinsic cultivation of deniability and the sheer discussion of pragmatic literature is a systemic blight upon the macrocosm of authors. You know, no one appreciates writers anymore. I'd like to give a, a quick show of support to all of our close personal friend Philip Roth. As, yes, Philip. as you know, Philip Roth has been in the news lately in a sex scandal, saying that he is a weird sexual pervert, and that 
he has, he has, it. you know, the, what the reports say is that despite his old age, he's been training his legs in the gym so that he can plop down and block whole doorways and start jacking off in front of women so they can't get out. And I don't believe these reports. I think physically he's too weak, but I do. I just don't yeah. see it in this nature. It's I mean, not, you not read through Philip Philip Roth's books. There's nothing weird sexual. There's nothing to show that this man is any kind of deviant. He wrote about average sexual things. He wrote about roommates jerking off on each other's stuff. He wrote about a lot of weird sex handjob stuff. He wrote a lot about coveting women and masturbating. And, and the thing about Philip Roth is he just never did any weird sexual stuff that would release this. So I'd like to give a quick shout out to Philip Roth. Um, you know, stay strong, buddy. Philip, do not let them break you. Oh, Philip. Ever. Perhaps this will, I like to think in the positive sense that this would give us an incredible book from the, Philip Roth. The, the, the Jewish pervert. That's what it's called. No, I think Phil. He's Jewish. Oh, Phil Roth is Jewish, so he could he could make a book called. You know. I'm pretending to be our friend Philip, saying that, and it right. would be okay if he said okay, that. So it's too. fine. It's like a character. It would it would be called, okay. like, the plot to assassinate the president of the United States by a Jewish pervert, and it would be a book about a guy who wants to destroy the U.S. because of the Vietnam War, but he spends all of his free time in those porn movie theaters where you slide a nickel in and then you see a grainy video of a woman masturbating. And then at the end of the book, he would decide that he got a job at a factory, so everything's okay. That's very Well, I have a, a lecture to teach in about ten minutes, so I have nothing more. I have to... I, have, I, I feel like we... I have... Uh, that... You know, that you know, T.A. has been... She's going to be there. We are currently recording. I would love to complain to her. her. her too. We are currently recording in a yeah. room in the library that has windows for walls, and I am seeing a proverbial gaggle of my students who, if they aren't waiting for me, I'm going to still talk to them and see how their studies is going. So if you gentlemen have anything else... I, um... We'll be moping around uh, the Best Buy in Massapequa, Long Island, while I'm in America. If you approach me at the 45-degree angle, it will trigger a memory of a very bad summer camp incident that I will describe to you for seven hours. Gentlemen, I will see you, presumably, at the next... Big Riders Pervert Conference. Gentlemen, have a good day. Per perverts forever.